Folletta Investigates. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of Folletta Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcisllc.com. The purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country. Here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it. See you in October. Okay, everybody, I want to welcome you to our podcast, for Let Investigates. Our guest today is a former supervisory special agent with DEA. Uh, he's worked in many different locations throughout the country and including overseas duties. Our guest is uh, Jeff Higgins, and I want to welcome Jeff to our show. Hey, thanks for, very much for having me, Larry. It's a pleasure to be here. And so Jeff is, uh, I, I think Jeff is one of my, I'll call him one of my most unique uh, guests, because not only is he a former DEA agent, but he's also a prolific writer. He's published about 23 articles. He wrote nonfiction books and four novels. Uh, he was interviewed by dozens of media outlets, including the New York Times, Fox News, CNN Newsroom, Declassified, USA Today. was on the front lines against the Taliban, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Jeff has many, many awards, uh, to name a few of them. Uh, he was awarded the Department of Justice Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs Section Award for Outstanding Performance in Narco-Terror-Related Law Enforcement, the Attorney General's Award for Exceptional Heroism, DEA Award of Valor, the DEA Administrator's Award, and many U.S. Attorney's Office's awards. And so what I'd like to talk today about is obviously that uh, a lot of people didn't really know what DEA's role was in the World Trade Center bombing. And uh, Jeff, I believe at the time, was assigned in New York working and, and actually responded there. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But Jeff, again, welcome, and uh, I, I would like you to educate our public and everybody else that's listening about uh, your career. Well, thank you, Larry. It's a very generous introduction. I mean, certainly uh, that 9-11 and the events at the World Trade Center changed a lot of things for DEA and for myself personally. You know, I never thought I was going to be in law enforcement. I always wanted to be a writer from the time I was a little kid, and I started as a journalist. I was between reporter jobs, and I, I uh, saw an opportunity to work as a private investigator. And I thought, gee, that would, that would be a lot of fun, especially since I'm writing you know, crime stories. So I started working as a private investigator. I worked for several different firms, and the people I was working with were all really interested in law enforcement, You know, the people who always wanted to be cops, always wanted to get involved somehow. And their enthusiasm uh, rubbed off on me a bit. And I started to get really interested in it. And I read a book, what was it called? The Underground Empire uh, by James Mills, I believe. And it was yeah, about, I think, 
Yeah, it was, I, yeah, I've actually bumped into a lot of DEA agents who said that book's also what them got them interested in DEA over the years. Yeah. It was about Centoc and it was about the, yeah. the concept of finding these organizations around the world that are all linked from, from supply all the way to the end users. And so that, that got me really interested in it. And um, so I, I, I entered law enforcement kind of in the back of my head thinking I'd do this for a period of time. But I really became enthralled with it, and I ended up working as a, a deputy sheriff in the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office down in Tampa, Florida. And once I did that, I, I was just really hooked. How long? How much time did you spend on the sheriff's office? I was there for about five years. You know, I started in patrol. I actually got into a shooting while I was still in training on patrol. We'd had, we'd had a uh, call for a disturbance at a, at a barbecue. Somebody was being unruly, and my training officer and I showed up, and we were directed to a house down the street where apparently one of the guests was drunk, and he was arguing with the with the complainant's uh, daughter. And so my partner and I walked down to this house, and as we were approaching it, uh, the the suspect, the guy we were going to talk to, really just to tell him to quiet down shot and killed the woman. He shot her in the head as we were walking up, up the driveway to this house. He was standing on the porch and he pointed his gun at, at my partner. My partner dove behind the car and I went running up against the side of the garage and, uh, and the, the guy uh, hid from me and extended his gun to shoot my partner. And my only target was the guy's hand holding the gun. And I shot it and I swear I saw the bullet go over his hand. I just, I missed him. And, you know, it's, it's strange how your body reacts during shootings. I, I, I was in several over my career, but that was the first one. And, you know, your, my uh, auditory yeah. senses shut down and, and everything kind of went in slow motion. But after I shot and missed him and then he threw the gun out, we ended up taking him into custody. But that, that was like a, a month or something into training. So my, 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 <laughs> my career started off with a bang, literally. <laughs> literally, yeah. Well, I guess that would be a welcome to law enforcement, right? Yeah, it sure was. I mean, it's, it's really an interesting career. And it's funny coming as somebody who didn't always want to be a cop and then doing it and realizing, you know, that there's real, real evil in the world. And, and there's there's a that, that thin blue line that's standing between the victims and, and, the, and these evil people, you know, and, and, and getting out there and really being able to help people in a tangible way it was so exciting, especially in patrol. I think patrol is about, about as much fun as you can have in a lot of ways in, right. in law enforcement. Well, I also worked on an auto force task force and I worked in a street crimes unit where I did a lot of undercover work, you know, trying to buy guns and drugs. And and I worked a hotel motel unit where there was prostitution and just every conceivable kind of street crime going on. And that's where I I learned how to run human sources and uh, do entries. We did a lot of search warrants, that kind of thing. And I ended, ended my career with the sheriff's office as a narcotics detective in their organized crime bureau. And I had some direct exposure with DEA. And so uh, I, I guess that that was your introduction into working with DEA. And, you know, the one things that I always talk about, especially with all the retired guys that over their career, you know, uh, DEA has been one of those agencies that's kind of been behind the curtain, so to speak. And a, a lot of the agents that, that do all this work, like yourself and myself and hundreds and thousands of others, uh, really go on Herald. And uh, so... You know, we're looking to educate uh, our audience about the real dangers of what DE agents do. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of truth to that. And the uh, 
I think part of it's DEA's fault as an organization. I think they should do a better job of promoting what they're doing. And, and it, it's understandable. You know, a lot of intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies are used to secrecy and, you know, everything you're doing is, is, is sort of behind the curtain. And so it makes sense that they don't want to talk about active investigations and they don't want to get informants hurt and that type of thing. But they, they really don't do a good job of, 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 yeah. of bragging about what, what their agents are doing on a day-to-day basis. I mean, when I was, you know, uh, later in my career, I was part of a case. It wasn't my case, but it was, it was at that point, the largest drug history, the, la- the largest drug seizure in the history of the world. And it was overseas and we couldn't get DEA to put out a press release about it. It took them like two weeks. And by that time, it, you know, another agency we'd been working with from another country had been bragging about it on the front pages of their, of their you know, that kind of thing. It's like, yeah. well, when, when we do these important things in these important cases, I think people should really hear about it. Drugs too. Like a lot of people have this idea in their head of, of, of what a DEA agent is. And it's sort of the cowboy image, I think, you know, from, from movies and things, but no matter where you stand on drugs or, you know, people think about, oh, marijuana or these soft drugs, or it's no matter, you know, if you believe in legalization or not, the people that DEA are going after are really nasty transnational criminal groups. You know, these are people that are, they're murdering people, they're enslaving people, they're, they're destroying economies, you know, so, so, if, if drugs were to be legalized tomorrow, a lot of the people that DEA is targeting would just switch and go into more human trafficking and more weapons, you know, trafficking, that kind of thing. So they're, yeah. the, the work they're doing is, is really important for our country. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of misconceptions here. And one of the big fallacies sometimes uh, out there by the news media is about arresting drug users and putting them in prisons. And, uh, I, you know, you and I both know the real truth is we don't arrest drug users. We go after the major cartels and the organizations. Uh, and, and usually it's somebody that gets incarcerated. It's not over drug use. It's because of they committed a crime such as burglary, robbery, or, or whatever they, you know, they were involved with. Yeah, especially when you're talking federally, when you're talking people who are in jail, like in a local jail or might be there for a, you know, a few weeks or something that could be related to like some kind of minor possession at a local level. But when you're talking about people in prison who are there for in jail for more than a year, the crimes are far more serious. And especially federally, people are not like users are not in jail federally. You know, that's just, I mean, right. there may be a, an example of it, but the people that are being put away are sometimes they, they've been charged and convicted for some type of possession, but that's usually like a plea bargain down from something much larger. You know, somebody, somebody ends up uh, agreeing to, uh, you know, a kilo of heroin or something, but they're part of an organization sure. that's doing hundreds of kilos all the time. And that organization's murdering people and kidnapping people. And, you know, so that this, this idea that there's people like who are smoking marijuana than going to federal prison is just silly. Yes, it is. So let's go, let's talk a little bit now, uh, Jeff, moving forward, going into your uh, DEA career. I know uh, you went to New York and let's talk about that. Let's talk about what happened uh, at the time of the World Trade Center and what you did and, and you know, what some of the other agents did in, in, in response to it. A lot of coming out of the academy, a lot of agents thought I was crazy because I volunteered for New York, and a lot of people were trying to avoid it. But you know, I wanted to really get onto the the pointy edge of the spear, so to speak. And and you know, we were doing great uh, transnational criminal groups and complex conspiracy cases against organized crime. You know, we did one one of the cases we did was against a uh, it was a small case. I, I had I was I was a new agent and I was given this informant that was kind of a pain in the neck and could only do low level stuff. And I orchestrated a small heroin buy, and then I went to arrest the uh, suspect. 
and he rammed my car and we got into a car chase and he ended up losing control. This was like late at night in Queens and ended up driving through the front of a restaurant in his oh. car and he got out into a foot chase and the two of us ended up alone in the middle of the night in Queens and I fought him and he, you know, was, he cut an artery in his head and we were wrestling around getting all bloody. It was just, you know, that was this little case, but ended up flipping that guy, which is one of the things that DEA does, which is why I'm mentioning this right. is the, the tactics DEA uses are, are, are so, it's so important and they're so effective. I ended up flipping this guy and he, he told me about a, a heroin group that was operating in the Bushwick area uh, of Brooklyn. And, and that, that group was importing or working with a Colombian uh, cocaine group and was importing cocaine and heroin. And they were uh, uh, distributing it all over the region. And one of the guys who was running this group w- was, was committing, oh, just horrific acts. Like uh, we, uh, he, had, he had a murder in Boston that he himself uh, w- had been involved with. And so we, we, started, we started investigating this group and we introduced an undercover and, and sources and we started doing buys from them. And we, we, ended, up, we ended up taking down this, this organized crime group in, in Bushwick, which actually just from taking down this one group because they were so significant, lowered the crime rate in that area for a period period of time at least but um we we were we charged you know federal hostage taking and and you know murder for hire and and all these violent crimes that this group was doing they were you know dangling people off bridges and things and and then we solved the homicide in boston and ended up indicting this guy and and catching him later um you know all, all based on just starting with an informant and a simple buy and then working up the chain and that's what dea does you start at the bottom and, and work your way up and in the end i i even arrested one of the the colombian members who who had come in with a shipment so we you know we we took we took a low level buy and all the way up to colombians and and murders and we we charged a bunch of people with racketeering and that was sort of you know typical for the 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 methodology of dea right you know, no doubt about it and working your way up the ladder is important uh, in in these organizations. So now you're you're working, you're uh, you know continuing your career in, in New York, and uh, you know all of a sudden this major incident takes place in our country. So tell us, you know, what happened and, and what you did. Yeah, we went in later in New York. I, w- I was living in Stamford, Connecticut at the time, just outside the city, and. I, I, I was in the gym working out in the morning when the first plane hit the tower and I immediately called to see if, if, if we were responding and, you know, nobody knew what was going on. So I got in the car and I drove down to uh, New York, which is by the way, the kind of the instinct of most of the cops and agents that I've worked sure. with over the years, they, they go towards the trouble and I'll, I'll never forget coming down the uh, West side highway and coming around a bend and there was basically no traffic because every they were, they roadblocks had gone off to prevent people from coming into the city and seeing one tower had fallen already, another one was just smoking like a chimney. And there was a NYPD officer who got on the uh, radio and said something like, "You know, the tower's down." The operator's like, "Can you repeat that?" And he's like, "It's down. It's gone." You know. And I'll, just, I'll never forget that moment. And the people just lined up on the side of the highway, like staring at, at this at this smoking tower. It was it was like a scene out of a horror movie. You know, so I responded to the office and there were agents, everyone's kind of running around wanting to do something because that's, that's what law enforcement officers of all types do. They want to get involved. They want to help. But there was no plan. And so a, a group of us, there were six or seven of us got together and we said, we're just going to go down. So we left our names and contact numbers and we jumped in cars and we drove down there. And as soon as we pulled out of the office and turned around the corner, the other tower came down. Wow. So we got down there and you know it was just chaos. It was right after the tower had fallen. There were clouds of dust everywhere. And 
I, I remember approaching a uh, police captain asking him well, what he needed. And he was just in shock. He's like, you know, my guys are down there. I don't know what we need. And I was like, we have, you know, hundreds of agents right up the street. What can we do? He's like, I don't know. And so I ended up with another agent, Jeff Knight. We ended up walking uh, down towards the tower and then we got separated halfway. I mean, it was really chaos. It was like walking through a war zone. There were flames bursting out of crevices in the, in the concrete. Cars were on fire. You know, it, it was it kept choking. There was smoke everywhere. And I, 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 I'm walking down towards the tower. I'm like uh, two blocks away. And this guy walks out of the smoke towards me. And it's this guy, Don Riley. He was an investigator with the uh, Suffolk County DA's office. And one of the guys I'd worked with on that case I just told you about with the racketeering. Huh. And so the two of us hooked up with a, um, a female NYPD officer. And we walked down to the tower. And we we're actually the first people to arrive at that at the ruins of the North Tower. You know, we found a, a body lying in the... Uh, in the rubble who a guy was still breathing. We, we assisted, we got a, an EMT came over and we assisted trying to get him out of there. I don't know if he ever made it or not, but you know, a lot of people had fallen. A lot of people were injured on the ground, but it was just chaos. I mean, I, I remember, uh, we're searching, looking for survivors. And I remember climbing into a, uh, a fire engine, hoping nobody was, was in there. Cause it was just covered with rubble. And w- when I climbed in here, I'm in there was empty. I jumped out and then I heard this whoosh and I turned around and, and the whole back of the fire engine w- was involved with flames that had been coming out of the ground. You know, I walked into the uh, Verizon building at one point and we were searching it because punks uh, of the tower had fallen and had actually uh, cut holes in the side of the Verizon building. And so we were searching to make sure everybody was okay. And I was in a loading dock area and the whole uh, room just filled with smoke and I, and I couldn't see anything. And I got, I had a flashlight, didn't work. I got down on my hands and knees and I followed my uh, footprints in the dust to, to get back out. Mm. But it was, you know, it was, uh, I was down there for hours. And at one point the uh, operator called and, and I had my radio with me and, and told me to return that agents weren't allowed down there. And when they called me, I was literally carrying a stretcher with some firefighters of, with a wounded firefighter on the stretcher. And I told the guy I wasn't coming back. And he's like, all right, just stay down there. But, um, I was a little disappointed with DEA's response that day, but also in subsequent days because we were all told to go home. You know, all the all these right. agents who are standing there, and and, and I, I understand the management decision. We weren't trained in rescue and recovery or whatever, but you know, you have right. you have you know hundred eight hundred plus agents standing in an office wanting to help. So after that, we were at home for several days, and then eventually the word came down that we could we could go down and, and volunteer. You know. It, Right. on our own time, which I did and, you know, help pull body parts out of the rubble and carry bodies. So it was, it was a, it was a gruesome moment. But when I was there, when I was standing that day, I remember jets flying low around us, you know, just seeing this, this was just horrible tragedy with all these lives lost. And I swore I was going to get revenge for that. <laughs> I, you know, I stood in that pile and I said, I'm not going to let this stand. And I think, I think every law enforcement officer in the country felt the same way. Right. But it, for, for me, that it changed the career of my, of, or changed my whole career path because from that point forward, all I wanted to do was investigate terrorism. Yeah. And something like that is, uh, will be embedded into you for the rest of your life. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, it was a horrific, uh, incident in time for our country. And, and speaking of which, when you mentioned, you know, you weren't going to let this go by, you eventually, uh, went to Afghanistan. Uh, you were on what we called the the uh, FAST team, which was the Foreign Deployed Advisory Support Teams that worked directly with our military uh, over in Afghanistan. So tell us about uh, what took place 
next, Jeff, when you went to, uh, you train obviously with the special forces, uh, and then you went over to Afghanistan. So clue us in on what took place. Well, I, I first went over to uh, help get the Kabul country office up and running. So that was before FAST. It was my first year there. I was there, I think, four days, and uh, Tim Sellers was the agent who was temporarily assigned to the office, and he had a source that was that that had a uh, a, a group of uh, insurgents that had been responsible for for murdering people at the Kabul airport just a couple months before, and they were getting ready to transfer a uh, IED to a suicide bomber. And he, he told me about it. He had a meeting set up. The, the guys never showed up and he, he, he rescheduled the meeting. And so I went with him. We got the uh, ISAF, the International Security Assistance Forces, had a, a Norwegian a crew who was, I guess, the, the, the groups that were on call. It was a multi-nation you know, ag- uh, agency. So everybody contributed troops at various times. And they were responsible for security in Kabul. And they, they had a, a convoy of troops ready to intervene. And we had our source set up another meeting. And our source was with the member of this this uh, this insurgent group when he was he brought an IED to deliver it to a uh, to the suicide bomber, and we got our lines crossed. And the the informant told us that they were meeting at this tea house, and we had the the Norwegian uh, military raid the house, but they only grabbed our sources because because the suicide bomber hadn't arrived yet. So we ended up throwing our source in a car and Tim and I and a Norwegian radio operator and somebody from ATIC, which is the anti-terrorism group for the Marines that were at the embassy, jumped in a car and we drove across the river trying to tra- track this guy down. And we found him. We found uh, the, the, the insurgent carrying his IED in the middle of this big crowd. And we followed him in the car and we were trying to get the military to uh, respond. And they were across the river and couldn't turn their convoy around. And we saw our guy headed t- towards a crowded bus with, with this IED. And so we asked for permission to make the arrest and they told us no. And then, you know, we did what DEA do. We just, we took action. So my partner right. and I jumped out of the car. We chased this guy across the uh, big square and tackled him. The bomb went flying in the air. We ended up oh, wrestling yes. him and he was trying to, uh, he was, he kept trying to reach under his, uh, his clothes for something and, and we're wrestling him. And meanwhile, the crowd was coming in on us and, but people were throwing bottles and yelling and we had to pull our guns out and hold our guns on the crowd while we're wrestling this guy. And he kept, he kept trying to, uh, to, to reach for something. And my partner, and said, you're going to have to shoot him. And, I, and so, you know, I pulled out my gun and I put it against his head while we're wrestling him and the crowd went crazy and they came in. So we, I, I knew we couldn't do that. So I put it away and my partner ended up choking the uh, suspect out. And finally, well, they, they dropped a, an Apache helicopter hovered over us and it kind of blew the crowd back and, and kept, kept them at bay until the Norwegians could finally get to us. And it turned out there were, I think, three and a half kilos of explosives and ball bearings in the, in the IED. And the, the, the guy that we'd been wrestling with had been trying to reach a detonator that he had in his pocket. So that, that, was, that was four days into Afghanistan and things didn't get much better, <laughs> quite frankly, <laughs> after that. But it was interesting because for years I tried to get involved with terrorism and there were people in DEA who desperately wanted to because our our methods with human intelligence are so effective. And and yet there were a lot of people in the agency that were resisting being pulled into like the whole they, – they were afraid of being subsumed by DHS, which had just been formed, and they wanted to remain a single mission agency. So we had kind of this internal push and pull between managers. Do we get involved with the terrorism stuff or not? I mean, I even had inspections when they came to the office, told me to stop investigating terrorism in the Kabul office. And I told them there's no way I was doing that because we were just developing so much intelligence and there was nobody else who was really taking action. You know, we'd develop intelligence and we'd work with the local cops that we were that 
we were training and we'd go out and we'd make an arrest. Whereas, you know, I kept joking that the CIA was writing history books with a lot of their intelligence. <laughs> they were doing good work too, of course, you know, and everybody yeah. was doing great work there, but there, there, there wasn't really, there, there wasn't an agency that was really doing what DEA does in Afghanistan at the time and looking for judicial solutions. So, you know, I, I, we spent a, a lot of time trying to do that. I, I, I did some undercover. I did the first undercover since before the Soviets invaded, where I negotiated for 500 kilos of heroin to be delivered to New York and ended up, uh, you know, arresting the guy. We bought, I bought a few kilos of samples off him and we ended up arresting him there. Um, you know, lot, lot, lots of, lots of fighting. I fought with a couple of Taliban operatives while we were there. You know, we, um, we did a lot of operations trying to get a really, you know, nation uh, organization with these counter narcotics police up and running and trying to teach them what evidence was. And that's why we, that's when we decided we really needed our own like international unit that we can control and, and, and export power around the country into like a lot of these like austere provinces, because outside of Kabul, it was a fairly lawless country at the time. And the military had outposts and, and places where they patrolled, but most of the country or a lot of the country was still under some type of Taliban influence, if not outright control. So we, we, we developed the national interdiction unit, the NIU. And that's, that's when FAST was born at the same time to work with this national interdiction unit and with uh, special forces, you know, in the U.S. military and, and other military units. So we, we trained and we had these teams of, of 10-man teams with an analyst that would go and spend four months at a time in Afghanistan. And we, we, did, we worked in austere areas. You know, we were trained. I sure. carried a grenade launcher and we, you know, we, we, we did helo-borne operations in the mountains and we were blowing up labs in the deserts and really did, did a lot of, uh, you know, kind of uh, tip of the spear type stuff. I, I know that, uh, I mean, DEA has uh, really taken the lead on a lot of these international criminal organizations. And I know that, you know, with the FAST team and Anything new that DEA did or had came up with new day was always controversial um, in, in terms of internal controversy, I guess. Um, we had a guest on our show. His name is Joe Persante. I don't know if you were familiar with him. Yeah, I know Joe. Yeah. what a, The guy was just uh, an incredible story, just like yours. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, he got shot and blinded and, and, and told us such a, a heartwarming story about him. So you know, Joe's heroic. He's uh, you know, to suffer an injury like he did would be so devastating for most people. And yeah. and Joe seems to have taken it in stride. You know, he's he's always been an achiever. And the fact that he, that he's he's been able to push through that and continue to contribute and just and never lose that just enthusiasm and that and that edge that he has. I mean, it's really it's impressive. Like I I, I don't I don't know that I, I would be able to to handle the things Joe has handled as well as he has. I'm I'm really in awe of the guy. Yeah, it's just uh uh tremendous, uh, person that he really is. So, um, Jeff on, on your fight with the Taliban, including wrestling a bomber, um, what else were you guys doing over there? I mean, uh, I know you mentioned you did some undercover work, uh, which is, I guess it's kind of unusual in one sense, working undercover in a foreign country and being involved in, in those types of, uh, situations. So every team that we had, you know, worked slightly differently. My goal from the time I was over there, my goal was to work counterterrorism. That's what I wanted to do. And to do that, I had to consistently try to show the nexus between narcotics and, and terrorism. 
And so I, and, and push, push our agency into that direction. So that was my goal from the first time I, I went to Afghanistan. And, you know, I'd, I'd worked at DHS after 9-11 briefly and, and just seen all the great intelligence that DEA had and that, that we had all these drug groups and transnational criminal organizations that we'd infiltrated were also involved with terrorism. And I was when I was I was in this watch center in D.C. and, and, and looking at the, the FBI and the CIA and these other agencies producing this information about these various terrorist groups and then, you know, running the names and running the addresses and numbers and seeing DEA investigations popping up all over the place. So I knew our methods would work. You know, I knew how DEA did work and, and I, I really just wanted to apply that to terrorism. But it, there was a, there was a battle, you know, I had, uh, you know, members yeah. of high ranking intelligence people telling me that there was no proof that drugs and terrorism were related in any way, which seems silly now with what we know. But at the time I was sure. getting that from everybody. The military was afraid of a slippery slope, you know, the intelligence agencies didn't want DEA involved in terrorism. There were, there was, there's always a lot of that, like stove piping of information and, and, right. and, and rivalry between agencies, which seems crazy when you're talking about issues of national security. But fast, fast was the answer to that in a lot of ways. And that it gave us the capability to go, to work with the military and to go into places that agents without the training and materials couldn't do. You know, I mean, we, we had, we had machine guns, you know, we, we had grenade launchers, we, we right. had training and fast roping and that type of thing. So, you know, we were, we were able to bring a little more punch that, you know, that you really do need the training and, and weaponry to do. Um, we were involved with, a, you know, some massive, like largest, I told you, largest seizure of uh, hashish. You know, we, we did the largest, the world's largest seizure of opium. We, um, depending on each team did things differently. My team, we tried to develop evidence and basically do, you know, we, we supported the Kabul country office agents, but we basically tried to work on, you know, developing informants. And we had, I think at one point I had over 30 and 32, 37 informants working in Jalalabad in, in Eastern Afghanistan on the border with Pakistan, you know, just developing uh, terrorism information, drug information, other crimes information. We freed a, a slave at one point, a, guy, a, a, a wow. young boy had been held as a sex slave from it with a Taliban crew and we ended up rescuing him, you know, just all kinds of crime and just endemic corruption that was going on. It's, 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 it's hard almost to, to envision it when you live in the United States and you have the rule of law, but these places where it just doesn't exist and hasn't existed for a very long time. And concepts of evidence and trial and people being presumed innocent is, is so foreign that, you know, they, the police would arrest people because everybody knows he's, he's a criminal, you know, and they go arrest right. him without evidence and the guy would get out. And even when you arrested and convicted somebody, they, they'd get out of jail. So we, we did a lot of like traditional kind of DEA cases, but we also went on operations with the military where there was drugs involved, like there was operation uh, siege engine, which was back in 2008 or 2009, I think it was 2009. And it was in Marja in the Helmand province. And there was a, uh, an opium bazaar right in the center of the province that was basically run by the Taliban. And we flew in there with a bunch of special operations. And it was, it, it was actually the biggest special operations uh, operation of the war after the initial invasion. And we went in there and up to that point, military and DEA, we'd gone into places, we'd hit targets, and then we'd left. In this case, we actually held it. So we went in there and we took over this this opium bazaar, which was which like half of it was opium and the other half was was run by the Taliban. And we held this thing for three days and we were in constant contact with the enemy for three days. And we ended up seizing like sixteen or seventeen thousand kilos of opium and morphine and heroin and hashish and 
and the other the other half of this compound, we found IEDs and mortars and RPGs and blasting caps and you know Russian NVGs and just just all kinds. There were there were uh, documents like like strategic documents the Taliban was using and and um, uh, vests, the suicide vests and things with Iranian writing for there. The Iranians had been supporting them, and we so we were in combat for for like three straight days uh, until we left. So there were th- those kind of classic military operations. You know, we're working with the SEALs and other special forces. And then there were the more traditional stuff. And we, we did, a, in my time over there, we did a couple of interesting cases. We had the, um, we, I, I was looking for a nexus to really prove, like, I mean, I, I, it sounds so strange, but everybody was fighting the, other than, you know, DE agents who knew better, was fighting the idea that drugs were, were supporting terrorism. And it just, just theoretic, theoretically makes sense, right? I mean, these places, it's, it's the best revenue stream in some of these really impoverished places that, that have the natural resources and are able to grow these drugs. So, you know, I mean, uh, Afghanistan has always uh, supplied about 80 to 90% of the world's heroin. And they always have the most uh, amount of uh, hectares under um, under poppy cultivation in the world. So, you know, it, they and, and at the same time they have the the highest uh, percentage of of uh, terrorist organizations in that area. I mean, there's so many terrorist organizations on the on the Pakistan Afghanistan border on both sides of the border. And so we, you have the, you have this high concentration of terrorists in in the, the the world's heroin in the same place. Of course, they're together. <laughs> you know, so sure. you know that's what we were looking for. So we we did a case. I, I had a source, and I was working with a really patriotic uh, Afghan police officer, and we ended up identifying a Taliban guy named Khan Mohammed. And uh, my partner uh, Tucker Coles and I were were living on the Jalalabad airfield with a special forces team. This is right, you know, very close to the Khyber Pass in, in eastern Afghanistan. And um, we learned that this Taliban operative was planning a rocket attack against the base, which happened somewhat frequently. There were suicide while we were there, suicide attacks, and you know, bombers at the gates, and you get shot at and rocketed. That kind of thing happened with some regularity. Um, but we identified this guy and we did what DEA does. We, we, we found a source. We knew someone who knew him or a, a source, a source had come to us from this police officer and, and the source, because we've been telling the police officer, this is what we were looking for. The source told us that Khan Mohammed was looking or had acquired rockets, had asked this guy to acquire rockets and the Taliban commanders who were running the war from Pakistan had specifically wanted these guys to, to launch a, a rocket attack. So, and coincidentally, this guy was also, uh, Khan Mohammed was also an opium trafficker. So, you know, that we looked at this as like a nexus target. And in 2006, based on DEA's information, the intelligence that we've been gathering for years, Congress passed the 21 USC 960A, which is the narco-terrorism law that basically makes it a, a crime to use narcotics proceeds to, to fund terrorism. Or, or in you know, and basically any way, any way that the two are related, there's a way to charge them under this law. So we went after Khan Mohammed, hoping to set the precedent for this new law and show that here's a judicial way to arrest somebody, as opposed to just like having the military detain them and take them to like a prisoner under control facility at Bagram, and then after a year releasing him, which which was that was happening all the time. So we were looking for like a, a, a solution. So we en- we ended up uh, trying to realizing we had to stop the attack, but we also had to prove that this guy was a drug trafficker. And so we 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 were trying to arrange a seizure of, of the rockets, and we finally just had our our source and our police officer pick them up and drive them to us. And my partner and I met him uh, 
by this creek bed near a road in, in the Nangarhar province. And they delivered these rockets to us. And then we had our source tell Khan Mohammed that the rockets had been stolen. And just, just as a way to prevent the, like the imminent attack that was going to happen. And then we had our source uh, arrange for a purchase of opium and then later uh, purchases of, of heroin, which we had on video. Um, we did a lot of audio recordings, but because of like the, the, the austere nature of, of the Nangahar province, it, it wasn't feasible for us to go into these little villages and, and watch things ourselves. So we had to use a lot of audio and video recording and also use a, a trusted local police officer whenever we could to like, to like watch negotiations in an opium bazaar. So we ended up doing a bunch of um, buys and then we lured Khan Mohammed to Jalalabad and arrested him at a police roadblock checkpoint that we'd set up with the NIU and then, and then uh, conducted a, a, a Hilo born raid of his residence down in the Chaparhar district, which is very close to Tora Bora where Osama bin Laden disappeared after nine 11 into Pakistan and, and ended up raiding his house. And he became the first uh, person arrested for narco-terrorism. We, we arrested him for the drugs initially because they were, you know, the, the sources that they were destined for the U S and then we we the the Afghans released him to to uh, the military who, who brought him to the United States, and we convicted him in Washington D.C. in two thousand eight. So that that that's the case that set the precedent precedent for the first narco terrorism arrest and conviction. And really, it, it's a great tool that hasn't been used often enough. But it's it's right. a way to take these really dangerous people and put them away for a long time. He's he's serving a life sentence right now. Yeah, and and uh, the difficulty of putting something like this together and trying to get everybody to cooperate uh, and get these guys prosecuted uh, is, is always a challenge. So also, Jeff, you worked at the uh, Special Operations Division in SOD. Uh, and uh, I know there were some highlighted investigations there. Um, talk a little bit about some of the things that uh, you were involved there. Well, that's a, that's a great group too. Now, you know, FAST has been disbanded. It's, they no longer right. have this international tactical team, which is a shame because it gave us capabilities we really could use. But the special operations division has, has, uh, has, has real, it's a really terrific concept where I was in a narco-terrorism group and there's part of the bilateral investigations division, the goal being to target the highest level uh, traffickers and, and members of these transnational criminal groups and work with our foreign counterparts and indict these guys and then bring them back to the U.S. to charge them with narco-terrorism or one of the other long-arm statutes, they call it, where we're allowed to charge people with crimes that affect the U.S., and so we, you know, the, the cases they're doing there have, uh, there've been books written about some of the cases the guys have been doing. There's really high profile stuff. And as a matter of fact, if you look at like the, in Congress every year, you know, the, the DEA, you know, is trying to get money for the budget and they, they give highlights about what DEA has been doing. And, you know, over the last decade, a lot of those cases have been some of the special operations division and, and fast because there, I, I think it's actually a model for the whole agency. I think a lot of the lower level stuff we're doing, while important, could be left to the local police departments. But this stuff right. is where, you, where you're targeting the leaders of these major organizations that are running what's happening in you know the, these criminal groups that are in the U.S. or affecting the U.S. That, mm -hmm. That's something that, that has to be done at a very high level. And SOD has been incredibly successful at this. I mean, these are long-term cases that go on forever. Um, 
when, when I was telling you about the Khan Mohammed case, so that four-month period my fast team was in Afghanistan, we also helped the Kabul country office go after a guy named Haji Bacho. And Haji Bacho, we knew, was a huge trafficker. Turns out he was the biggest heroin trafficker in the history of the world. We, 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 uh, he was the most prolific guy. Uh, according to UNODC estimates, he was responsible for 19.7% of the world's heroin, this one guy's organization. He was sending heroin to 21 or 22 countries around the world. It was just, just a monster. And my partner and I uh, found a source, you know, using the, the same DEA methods we were using since I was in New York, right, that everyone right. uses, and, and found someone who could just very simple level, knew someone. We, we found, a, we found the, an informant who, who was willing to uh, talk directly to Bacho about drug trafficking, and we did tapes, and we ended up doing a, a small a couple kilo buy, and then some search warrants, and and years later, when I went to the Special Operations Division, uh, uh, Pakistan had, had arrested ha- Haji Bacho. And then they turned him over to the Afghans who turned him over to us. So when I went to the Special Operations Division, I, I was the case agent for the trial. And we ended up charging him and uh, convicting him in, in D.C. again. But there was a there was a CNN declassified episode on these. Kind of an interesting, an interesting character. But those were the types of cases that we were doing it at SOD. I, I worked a, a case where we had somebody who was working for the uh, Iranian military. He was a dual citizen and he was trying to buy uh, surface to air missiles, the Igla S surface to air missiles, which are man portable missiles. And he was working um, with criminal groups in the area that had been dealing with the Taliban, but, but was working in the surrounding countries. And we ended up introducing an, an undercover to him and doing uh it's funny we he was he wanted to know that we actually had the missiles so i used one of the fast warehouses this is when i was with sod we went down to fast and and we we uh built the warehouse to look like a, a russian warehouse and we actually had an igla ass missile and we did a skype call our undercover did a skype call with him and we had someone in the background speaking in russian and we had russian music playing and a russian ak-47 dangling you know from, <laughs> from next to the crate and in in our in our um our source uh demonstrated the the igla s and showed it to him and and we ended up setting up a uh, meetings in in ukraine um, in Kiev, we did uh, undercover meetings where they talked about getting MiG parts for Iran and um, aircraft and things. And in the end, we ended up luring this Iranian operative to uh, Estonia, and we, we the police arrested him in Tallinn, and then we we uh, brought him back to the U.S. and we convicted him in New York. A, lo- a lot of what the Special Operations Division did was with with um, the Southern District of New York because they had combined their narcotics and terrorism uh, units into one unit. Realizing that the the techniques that the the narcotics uh, uh, agents were using would translate very nicely to terrorism, which was sort of the whole point of what I was trying to show. But it, it, New York proved it that they actually joined these units and were and, and have done a lot of these uh, cases. The the first uh, the first two um, with with Bacho and uh, Khan Mohammed, those were the first two convictions for narcoterrorism. They were done with the narcotics and dangerous drug section in Washington, D.C., and a really talented prosecutor, Matt Stiglitz, was the one who did both cases, ironically, with us. So, you know, I think I think these are tools that can be used. I mean, the DEA consistently it reports that about 37% of all the terrorism organizations in the world are related to narcotics. And I actually think the number could be much higher, but that those are based on our cases and, and, and the intelli- intelligence that we have. So, even you know, going even if you believe in legalization, going after 
using these narcotics laws to go after these terrorist groups is, is a terrific way to incapacitate them. Right. And I'm sure the statistics are really not really the telltale because we do know all these organizations uh, that are involved in terrorism are being supported by drug trafficking because of the volumes of money that's involved for them to support their continued, you know, operations. So, uh, Jeff, as you move on from Afghanistan and we'll get you back into the, uh, let's say the real world of, uh, domestic investigations. And, uh, you were a supervisor, uh, in, in uh, the WDL where I was first assigned when I came on a job. And, uh, I know that, uh, you worked with, uh, uh, the Montgomery County Police and PG County Police. A lot of the good friends of mine were on those departments, and we worked well together. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, the MS-13 gang members, because I know that uh, the uh, El Salvadorians were really growing in a community in D.C. when I was there, and I know uh, it, it really took off eventually. So tell us a little bit about that episode, and then we'll get into uh, your your uh, uh, your books. Yeah, MS thirteen is is really a, a dangerous, you know, international criminal organization. It's a gang, but they've they've destabilized Honduras, for example. You know, they've when 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 there isn't the rule of law in some of these countries, or, or it's it's not it's not widely applied, and you have these criminal gangs. They're able to exert a lot of influence over people in recruiting, and they become almost like a shadow government in some ways, where where they're able to use violence and and bring people into the fold and make people work for them. And a group like that, I mean, they're they're huge. MS-13 is huge in California, but they're all over the country, and they're right. they're just incredibly dangerous and incredibly violent. And they, they remind me, uh, sort of, of in some ways, of like the uh, the Italian mafia from you know from decades right. ago, where they're they're just involved in everything. You know, they're doing like illegal like alcohol sales and and low level drug stuff. I mean, it can be it can be bigger stuff where they're dealing kilos of meth or, or other types of drugs, but they're just incredibly violent. I mean, they're decapitating people. They're murdering people to get into when they bring someone new into the gang, they do a beat in with baseball bats. You know, they're, they're, they're committing rapes, they're committing murders. And in the DC area, there's, there's, there's a pretty big uh, contingent of them. I mean, they're in New York, they're all over the place and it's, it's a real threat. And, you know, I think I think our cops are so are so under the gun right now. And there's just, there's so much criticism of police and so unwarranted, by the way, I've written a few articles, uh, just off topic, but on on police and racism and how how these narratives that you're hearing in the news are are absolutely false, you know. Yeah. And 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 I go into the actual numbers and the actual studies, and it's it's just the, this idea that police are you know systemically murdering uh, black people around the country is just not true. There's only a handful of cases every year that that are questionable unarmed shooting of of, of black men. And of those, there's usually only a couple that are that are not good shootings, and that's out of you know 10 million arrests and 700,000 law enforcement officers. And and when when right. those when those bad shootings do happen, people are held accountable for them. 
but it's it's just not a systemic problem. Like I mean, I just if you look at you look at the numbers and you're like, oh my god, and there, there's a disproportionate number of of black suspects who are killed, but there's a disproportionate number of black suspects involved in crime as well. And if you you know if you control for for like you know involvement in in violent crimes in contact with the police and these other variables. You find that there's no that there's no difference at all. There's there there's no racism. The numbers just match what the crime numbers are, and and you can look at other variables. People just always assume racism if if two people have a conflict of different races, but these other variables prove it. So anyhow, on my website is jeffreyjameshiggins.com. You can find a few of those articles because I, I think it's important for people to have actually have the facts so that they can they can fight back when they hear these things because cops like we're talking about are going after MS13 they're going after these you know just horrible criminals that threaten our safety and security at the most basic level no matter no matter where you are in the political spectrum you need government to protect people right and to enforce the rule of law you need you need to be protected from other people who want to hurt you and that's the role, that's the most basic role of government and we have these these police officers all around the country putting their lives on the line and being called racists and being defunded. Their agencies are being defunded, and it's going to have really bad long term consequences when we we no longer get the quality applicants going for these positions. There's no doubt about that movement that's going on right now in this country. Uh, it's unfortunate uh, that our law enforcement officers are the ones that are getting the brunt of this, and the the other folks that get the brunt of this are the poorest communities in this country. Uh, and we could that could be another subject matter we could talk about all day. Uh, that uh, when you look at uh, Minneapolis, and I, I mentioned this the other day, you know now they're they're screaming back. You know, bring more police in. They're trying to get uh, outside agencies to help uh, Minneapolis. So we we know the real truth behind it. So a, as we uh, as we go into uh, the conclusion of our podcast with you. Uh, and it's been a very interesting one, to say the least. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your upcoming books that are that you have out, Jeff. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, so we we talked about my experience in Afghanistan, and I actually have written a nonfiction book about that, which my agent is submitting to publishers. It's tentatively called a Blood in Powder, and that'll, that'll that's basically the story of the first narco terrorism arrest from nine eleven to the the first narco terrorism conviction. Um, but I, I do have uh, two books coming out this year. They're both novels, something a little off topic, but I, but I have a, a, a story. It's, I'm going to try to remember the, the back jacket copy for you. It's it trapped on a storm damaged yacht. A grieving woman must conquer her worst fear, fears and fight for her life. And a story described as shining on the yacht. It's about a woman who loses her child and takes a, a cruise across the Indian ocean with her husband and, they're alone and isolated and some really bad things happen. <laughs> so I think right. it's, it's a fun, it's a fun thriller. It's, it's had some really good reviews uh, by Kirkus and, and other reviewers. So that, that'll be available on Amazon on May 20th. It's uh, published by black Rose writing. And then I have another book unseen, which is a crime thriller that takes place in Washington, DC. And that's also published by black Rose writing. And that'll come out on August 26th. So you can find them. I'll have links at jeffreyjameshiggins.com. You can go, you can look me up or look up Furious or Unseen on Amazon. I also have an Amazon page and I'm on Goodreads and uh, BookBub as well, or you can go to Black Rose Writing, but they're two fun novels. I think people will like it. And I, I bring some of my you know experience in life and death situations, which I probably had more than my share of over the years. And I, I bring sure. that to my thriller writing. So I'm hoping people will like that. Well, you could probably write a great nonfiction book about your uh, episode in uh, Afghanistan for sure. 
which I think would be uh, obviously a great educational piece for uh, the general public and all of us that uh, really don't know what DEA does at times and uh, the dangers that uh, that agents face all across this, uh, not only across the U.S., but across the world. And uh, so, Jeff, I, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, and I hope everybody uh, gathered in a, some a very important information and knowledge. Um, and uh, Jeff, tell us one more time on how somebody could get in touch with you. Uh, you can contact me through my website. It's jeffreyjameshiggins.com. It's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, James Higgins, H-I-G-G-I-N-S.com. And you can email me through there. It's jeffrey at jeffreyjameshiggins.com. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you for coming on today. Um, it was an excellent uh, piece, excellent information. Uh, and thanks, uh, thank you once again. Well, thanks for having me. And keep up the, uh, the great podcast. It's, it's a really interesting show, and I enjoy it. Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.